John 12. It has been a few weeks since we have been in John. As we recall last time, we left um, John 11, in fact, as one might expect. Lazarus being raised to life again was the context of John 11 as we enter into John 12 this evening. And as we do so, I'd like us to ask ourselves a question. I would like to ask a question of you, rhetorical. How precious is Jesus Christ to you? How precious is Jesus Christ to you? I'm going to step immediately into the context of John chapter 12, and that will be our intro this evening, because there's a lot of material to cover, though not all that many verses. As we step into John 12, we find ourselves six days before the Passover upon which Jesus Christ will give his life for the sins of the world. There is no doubt Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, faithfully attending every feast as God had commanded each Jewish male to do in the law of Moses. Jesus Christ lived a life under the law. He lived a life in full agreement with the law. Therefore, he was going to Jerusalem for the Passover, one of the three feasts in the year that the males, the Jewish males were required to attend. They were required to attend Passover. They were required to attend Pentecost 50 days later. And they were required to attend the Feast of Tabernacles in the month of Tishri, the seventh month of the religious calendar. On his way to Jerusalem, Jesus Christ stopped by Bethany, which we learned last time we were together is less than three miles from the gates of Jerusalem. This is the city where Lazarus lived. We recall in John 11, he came from some place, whether it be the wilderness or whether it was Galilee, into Judea to visit Lazarus, who was dead in Bethany. Well, Jesus Christ apparently left again after Lazarus was raised from the dead. We do not know what happened between John 11 and John 12, but now Jesus Christ is re-entering into Bethany six days prior to the Passover. As we mentioned this morning in our Sunday school hour, it is safe to assume, and I at least take the interpretive route that Matthew 26 and Mark 14 are speaking of the same event that is found here in John 12, verses 1 through 17. I believe as we walked through the lesson this morning, it became fairly evident as to the reasons why Matthew 26, Mark 14, and John 12 are speaking of the same event. Now, if this is correct, and they are all speaking of the same event, then Jesus has spent four days in Bethany. He is now two days away from the Passover and is in the house of Simon the leper in Bethany, dining with presumably Simon, as well as with his disciples, as well as with Lazarus. Mary and Martha are there as well. In verses 2 and 3, we see how these three people interacted with Jesus Christ while he was with them. Let's take a look beginning in verse 1. We'll begin reading. Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment." 
Now, as we look at this particular situation, we see three different people and how they interacted with Jesus while he was with them. Martha, we find, was busy serving Jesus. She was busy, as has been uh, relayed before in the Gospels, using those feminine sensibilities that she had in that particular culture to ensure Jesus' comfort, to ensure that he was served the meal. Lazarus was busy fellowshipping with Jesus. He was uh, keeping Jesus engaged, performing those things which custom deemed appropriate. We would not assume necessarily that Lazarus was the host of this meal. If he was in the house of Simon the leper, most likely Simon was the host. But it says Lazarus was with them. Lazarus was fellowshipping with them. Both of these people were taking the chances they had within the bounds of cultural norms and expectations to show Jesus Christ his worth. As we think about Martha, as we think about Lazarus, who on earth had physically benefited more from Jesus Christ's earthly ministry than these people had? Certainly, there were some blind men who could now see. There were some lame men who could now walk. There were some hungry men who were now fed. But here stood a dead man who now lived and his family who were no doubt not just... It's not just that Martha and Mary loved Lazarus, but we don't hear any account here of Martha and Mary being married. And so it is quite possibly the case that Lazarus was their provider, that Lazarus was the one that cared for them. And so not only was Lazarus's death a great sorrow to them because he was their beloved brother, but this may have very well put them in a place of great uncertainty as to their own ability to live and to continue in that culture. And so this family had benefited greatly from Jesus Christ's ministry. In verse 3, we see Mary's part. And as we look at Mary's part, as we look at Mary's response, as we look at Mary's interaction with Jesus Christ, we see something very different than the other two. Now, while Martha and Lazarus did that which would have been expected according to culture, according to hospitality, according to their love for Jesus Christ, Mary exceeded all cultural and, may I say it this way, even reasonable expectations and means of honor as she approached Jesus Christ that evening. That's what we see in verse 3. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. So much ointment was poured upon Jesus from this pound that she had that the entire house was filled with the smell of this ointment. Now, some of Jesus' disciples didn't like this very much. According to Matthew 26, according to Mark 14, it wasn't just Judas that was upset. Judas is the one that spoke out, but according to the, our, our parallel passages, all of the, or many of the disciples murmured within their hearts at this gift. Judas spoke up for the group, declaring that this ointment could have been sold for 300 pence and given to the poor. A wonderful thought and a seemingly righteous motive, but... Judas' heart was not interested in the poor, as we see in this passage, verse um, 5 and 6. But his heart was focused 
upon himself. And as for the other disciples, we don't know why they were upset. We don't know why they murmured within themselves. We don't know why this was such an affront to them. But something about her actions made them uncomfortable. And that's what we're going to look at this evening. We're going to look at the reactions. We're going to look at the responses of various groups to Christ. We're going to look at the response of Martha and Lazarus to Christ. We're going to look at the response of the disciples to Christ. And we're going to look at the response of the multitudes to Christ in John 12, 1-17. And as we do so, we're going to ask this question. How precious is Jesus Christ to you? See, because though we all love Jesus Christ, and though the people that we're going to see this evening and we're going to uh, um, look into this evening all had a particular degree of love for Jesus Christ, what we're going to see is that they all didn't have the same regard for Jesus Christ. And that's what I would like us to look at this evening. Three potential problems with our attitude towards Jesus Christ. Three potential problems with our attitude towards Jesus Christ. And if you have the notes with you this evening, those will be the three uh, points of our notes. Problem number one, as we look at verses one through three, we have read them already. It's a problem of, perhaps I, I call it misplaced love. A problem of misplaced love. Now, as I say this, I was a little bit uncomfortable with this point, And let me describe to you why. I do not desire to take anything away from the character of Martha or of the character of Lazarus. I don't even want to take anything away from the character of the disciples by my statements this evening. Scriptures make it clear that Jesus Christ loved Lazarus. Jesus Christ loved Martha and Mary. Jesus Christ loved the disciples. And far be it from me to cast doubt upon the sincerity of their love for Jesus Christ. But I would like us to carefully contrast the actions of each of these groups with the actions of Mary. And I would like us to do so because our actions speak for our heart. You say, but pastor, the Christian life isn't about actions. God knows my heart. After all, remember 1 Samuel 16, 7? For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Yes, I know that. But that verse isn't talking about judging a man by what he does. That verse is talking about judging a man by how he looks. If you recall, Samuel was judging the kingliness of every man by his stature, by his appearance, by how broad his shoulders were, by how tall he was, by how set his jaw was. And Samuel says, surely this is a king. Surely this is a king as he goes down the line. And God says, don't judge him by his appearance for I have refused him. Man looketh on outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. God was not telling Samuel not to judge them by their actions. He was telling them not to judge them by their appearance. So when you hear someone, and you're going to hear it as you're out there evangelizing, as you're out there telling people about Christ, and as you're out there telling some Christians that perhaps some of the things that are done in their churches are not right, or some of the things they do in their home is not right, or some of the things they allow their children to wear are immodest, you're going to hear this verse brought up and you're going to say, oh man, looketh on the outward appearance, but God knows the heart. On the contrary, Jesus often taught that a man's actions do indeed reflect something about his heart and his intentions. 
Maybe I can't judge a good pastor or a good Christian by their stature, by the way they walk, by the way they shake my hand, but I can judge something about a man's relationship with Jesus Christ by how he acts. Jesus Christ taught in Matthew 6.21 that where your treasure is, there will your heart, that word heart meaning the core of your being, your intent, your will, and your desire, there will your heart be also. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus Christ taught us that we can learn something about where man's heart is by where he puts his time and his money. In Matthew 12.34, Jesus Christ said, out of the abundance of the heart... That's that inward being, our intent, our will, our desire. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. That means that we can understand something about a man's heart by what comes out of his mouth. Jesus Christ taught in Matthew 15, 18 that those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart again. That which comes out of us is that which was already in us. Nothing that comes out of us was not in us. So while we cannot necessarily judge a man by his appearance, Jesus Christ told us very clearly that where a man's treasure is, where we see a man put his money, where we see a man put his time, where we see a man put his priorities, reflects something about what's in his heart. We see that what a man says, what comes out of a man's mouth, reflects something about what is in that man's heart. And so if we take Jesus at his word, we can come to no other conclusion than that Mary, by her actions, reveals a heart that saw Jesus as more precious than Lazarus, Martha, or the disciples. For while these men and women gave of what was perhaps expected of them, According to culture and hospitality, Mary gave above and beyond, revealing in her actions that Jesus Christ was of more worth to her than any material possession she owned. She showed Jesus that she was, excuse me, that he was more precious to her than things. I gave a testimony a couple of weeks ago in our ordination when, when you as a church was ordaining me about my sophomore year in college. I made a decision during my sophomore year in college to stop some things, and that decision changed my life forever. It was something that many people would regard perhaps as very minor. It may even be something that other people listening to the sound of my voice often engage in themselves. As a sophomore... At college, I chose one day to throw away my entire collection of pirated video games. These are video games I had not paid for. I had burned them onto a CD. They were somebody else's. They paid for them. I burned them and I played them. That, of course, is against the law because people that make games want to be compensated for their efforts. Not only was it against the law, but it was against the rules of my school, not just to have pirated video games, but to have these types of video games. And so I was breaking the rules of my school, the rules that I had signed saying I was willing to obey and agreed to obey, and I was breaking the law by stealing from the people who had, who had put the time and the effort and the money into creating these video games. Now, my action was simply this. I took my folder of video games, 
I took it to the trash chute. I opened the trash chute and I put the games in there. And I closed the trash chute and I listened as they banged from the ninth floor of my tower. Bang, 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 bang down the trash chute all the way to the dumpster. And they were gone. They were gone forever. Not only were the pirated games gone, but the video games as a whole were gone. A seemingly small, insignificant event in my life. People pirate video games and people pirate music every day. But in taking that step, it wasn't so much me taking those and throwing them down the trash chute that mattered, but it was that the action that I did there reflected a decision of my heart that I was going to allow, I was not going to allow anything to get in the way of my relationship with Jesus Christ. That I was counting my relationship with Jesus Christ of more worth than those pirated video games. So it wasn't so much that insignificant 20 seconds of my life where I walked from my dorm room to the trash chute that, that was the big deal. What was the big deal is what was reflected in my heart through that action. Does that make sense? So I ask you, how precious is Jesus Christ to you? Is He more precious to you than things? Is He more precious to you than those movies or video games or music or books or TV shows or time wasters or money wasters that you might engage in? In this instance, are you like a Martha or a Lazarus who shows Jesus Christ His worth but only shows Jesus Christ His worth as far as the culture expects you to? You will go to church... But culture's expectation says only one time a week. Only Sunday morning. You don't even need to go to Sunday school. So you'll come your one time per week because that's what cultural, in in our culture, that, that tells people you love Jesus. And so you're going to give Him His worth, but only to the degree that culture asks you. You will edit your movies, but culture says that, you know, as long as it's Christian culture, perhaps, says that, you know, rated R is the big no-no, so as long as we're under rated R, we're okay. You will evangelize, but culture says that, you know, as long as I put a fish on the back of my car, I am being a testimony of Jesus. I'm good. Culture's expectation is that I have a little fish on the back of my car. That is evangelization in Christian culture. And so there it is. I'm good. I've evangelized. I have fulfilled cultural expectation. Or are you like Mary? Who found ways to show Jesus His worth regardless of cultural expectation. Beyond cultural expectation. Culture says it enough is it is enough, but you say Jesus is more precious to me than that. Culture says you're wasting your time, you're wasting your effort, you're wasting your money, but you say it's all God's anyway. Culture says you're being legalistic, you're stripping all of the enjoyment out of this life, but you say that which is seen is temporal, but that which is not seen is eternal. Or you say, all things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. 1 Corinthians 10.23 Is Jesus more precious than the things in this life which you hold so dear? Is Jesus more precious to you than Christian culture? Than Christian expectation? We all say yes, don't we? Everyone listening under the sound of my voice says yes. 
But do we live? Yes. See, because out of the heart the man, a man speaketh, our actions reflect our heart. What do your actions say about how precious Jesus Christ is to you? We all love Jesus Christ, and I'm not doubting that. Martha and Lazarus truly loved Jesus Christ. I'm not doubting them. But Mary was the one whose love for Jesus Christ compelled her to pour out the most precious of ointment for Him. Problem number one, misplaced love. Potential problem number two, misplaced judgment. In verses 4-8, through we consider the disciples. Look at me beginning in verse 4. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? This said he, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bare what was put therein. Then said Jesus, Let her alone against the day of my burying hath she kept this. For the poor always ye have with you, but me... Ye have not always. Next, we consider the reaction of the disciples. Here we have a group of men that have been following Jesus Christ for years. They have seen the wonderful miracles of Jesus Christ. They have heard the tremendous teachings of Jesus Christ. They have been given privileges. They have been sent out in the name of Jesus Christ with the Spirit of God to preach the kingdom of heaven and to do miracles in Jesus' name. Three of these men had seen Jesus Christ transfigured before their very eyes and heard God the Father speaking from heaven, this is my beloved Son, hear Him. In our Sunday school hour, we spent time talking about the various interpretive difficulties surrounding the gospel accounts of women anointing Jesus with ointment. This circumstance comes up in every gospel, but with some Difficulties, as we talked about this morning, with some differences. After our study, we concluded that Matthew and Mark were certainly the same event. We also decided that John is most likely the same event as the one in Matthew and Mark, but that the Luke account is without question a different event than the others. Now, my statements in this point will reflect our conclusions of the study that Matthew, Mark, and John are the same event. And so as precious as the disciples knew Jesus Christ to be, they had seen men possessed with demons. Jesus Christ cast out that demon and those men fall at Jesus Christ's feet. As a matter of fact, they fell at Jesus Christ's feet when they were possessed with the demons. They saw the waters of the Sea of Galilee stilled from a great storm. Peter physically walked on water. They saw the multitudes fed with nothing but five loaves and two fishes. They saw Lazarus rise from the dead at the word of Jesus Christ. As precious as the disciples knew Jesus Christ to be, their response to Mary's actions was indignation, according to the Mark passage, was murmuring. Judas 
even called her actions waste. He reasoned that the money that she poured onto Jesus' head and feet could have been used for some far more godly purpose, such as feeding the poor. Now, Mary's efforts from a purely materialistic perspective were a waste of time, were a waste of effort, were a waste of money. Her investment was materialistically large, but had zero return. She poured this ointment upon Jesus. The ointment was gone. The box was broken. You couldn't get it back. And that was it. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been there in my life. When I stepped into the pastorate, I did so with a pretty strong philosophical, perhaps I could say theological, but more so philosophical, opposition to door knocking, to -to door-to-door ministry. I had spent many, many hours in college knocking on doors, going door-to-door, among other evangelistic efforts. And what I noticed through those years is the cost-to-benefit ratio of going door-to-door was very slim. From a sheer numbers perspective, the number of people that you see come to church, the number of people that make a decision, the number of people that are physically, materially, noticeably impacted by that ministry is low. So I have watched people go door to door or attract distribution and thought that's hardly even effective. Why waste the time? I have seen people who have given up even those things which are their freedom in Christ to enjoy in order that they might serve God better better, or in order that they might be a better testimony of Jesus Christ. I've seen people give things up that they know that it's their freedom to have or to do. And I've thought, how legalistic. You know, they just need to calm down a little bit. They're going to be so out of touch. They're going to alienate people. They're going to do more harm than good. They're, going, they're just wasting time. They're wasting efforts. Now, let me, let me be specific here. Let me be clear. I'm not trying to exalt ineffective ministry. I'm not trying to say that everyone's standards, the reason why they don't do things or the reason why they do do things are always for the right reasons. I'm not trying to draw you into into any sort of false sense of pride, nor do I wish for any man under the sound of my voice to leave and try to earn God's personal favor through his actions. But it seems apparent, and, and this is just my heart speaking to you, It seems apparent, because I know my own heart, that often what repulses us about the piety of others is not so much their heart and actions, but rather how their heart and actions expose deficiencies in my own heart and actions. Oftentimes, when I have looked at people and I have gotten annoyed with people for what they are doing for God, such as perhaps, why are they out door knocking? What a waste of time. Why are they doing this? It's such a waste of time. By the way, we door knock now. You know that. It's because I've changed my mind about that. But when I have done this in the past, oftentimes what I have found as I've searched my own heart is I'm not so much upset at what they're doing, but I'm upset because they are showing in their love for the Lord a zeal that I'm not showing in my own life. That while they're outdoor knocking, I'm not replacing that with some godly, pious, 
other form of ministry, I'm replacing it with sitting on the couch eating potato chips. And so while they are out doing whatever they can for the Lord, I'm sitting there serving myself and I'm trying to give an excuse as to why their service to the Lord is ineffective when what was I doing with that same time? I was sitting on the couch eating potato chips. And so it seems as though oftentimes in our lives when we look at the piety of others and we get frustrated, it's not as much exposing problems with their heart and actions as much as it's exposing deficiencies in our own. I was talking to someone this morning and they were relaying a testimony of someone they were talking to. And this person that they were talking to was probably not a believer. And they said as they were talking to this person, this person said they were frustrated at the testimonies that, that these Christians give. They're frustrated at the testimonies that these Christians give because when these Christians give these testimonies, it makes other people feel like they're not going to heaven. Or when these Christians give these testimonies, it makes other people feel like they're not as good or they're not good enough. What this person who was saying this was revealing was not a deficiency in the heart of the Christian for giving his testimony. It was a deficiency in their heart whereby when they hear the testimony of the Christian, they realize that their heart is not rightly related to Jesus Christ. Perhaps what bothered Judas the most, perhaps what bothered these disciples the most, even more than Judas having lost the money that he could have stolen by selling this precious ointment, Perhaps what bothered Judas the most was that this woman's faith and love for Jesus Christ, the degree to which she exhibited her, Jesus Christ's worth in her actions, exposed the leanness of his own soul. Perhaps what bothered him the most about Mary's actions was that worth that she placed upon Jesus Christ outshined his own. And as we look at the Matthew and Mark accounts, as I just mentioned, it's not just Judas that was offended. Many of the disciples were indignant. Many of the disciples believed that this woman had just wasted her money. And so perhaps what upset them the most was that this woman had just exposed in the disciples an element of worth that they didn't have in their own hearts for this man that they had followed for years. Now everyone does things for different reasons. If Mary had stolen the ointment or sought to do this thing in order to earn salvation or favor with God, certainly Jesus would not have commended her for it. But here was a woman who sacrificed her own earthly goods to reflect worth and glory onto Jesus Christ. And such an action was greatly commended in the eyes of God. The same holds true for you and I in this building, for you and I under the sound of my voice. God is never interested in the ends justifying the means. God doesn't want us to try to work our way into heaven, for no one possibly can. God is not interested in us trying to make ourselves look spiritual in the eyes of others. But when we do pour out that which we have in this life, whether it's time, whether it's effort, whether it's money, whether it's things... When we pour out what we have to Christ and genuinely give it to Christ in, may I just say, in alignment with His Word, I can pour out false worship to Christ all day genuinely and it's still false worship. I can pour out improper means of 
service all day to Jesus Christ and it's still improper. But as I align myself with God's Word and God's will, and as I pour myself out genuinely to Jesus Christ as a testimony of His worth, this testimony is commendable to God. We've talked about it before, but let me just remind us of some of the distinctives of our church. That as people in the community come through our doors, perhaps they have problems with. Perhaps they don't like so much. You know, we dress nicely as a church. Now, if you or I are dressing nicely so that others think that you're godly, there's no reward. But if, like Mary, we are dressing nicely in order that we can pour out Jesus Christ's worth in, the, in our appearance, in order that we can reflect in our appearance how much Jesus Christ is worth to us, I guarantee you the way we dress is commendable to God. We have three services per week. If you are coming just enough to satisfy your conscience or to keep things convenient, the reward will only be reaped to the degree that you give. But I promise you, that God loves the heart of a man who is willing to pour out his time, who is willing to miss the football game, who is willing to miss a little bit of sleep, who is willing to pay for that extra tank of gas. When the disciple's heart is doing what it is doing in order to show God his worth, this is precious to God. We do door knock in this church. If you are doing that, if you are out door knocking with us so that others think you are godly, or to have the most effective and efficient means of numerically growing the church, church, well then there's really not a whole lot for you in it. There's not a lot of commendation. There's not a lot of fruit. But I promise you that God loves the heart of the man or the woman who will give up his time. And for those of us who have been knock, door knocking, not just his time, but sometimes his pride, sometimes his um, willingness to stand there at the door and be yelled at, to reach people that may not be able to be reached in any other way. Lazarus and Martha loved God, but Mary's actions revealed that some of their love was misplaced. The disciples loved God, but Mary's heart revealed that their judgment of her actions was misplaced. A third and final problem as we move out of this anointing and we move into our next chunk in verses 9-17, through 17, we see the third problem, and this is a problem of misplaced motivations. A problem of misplaced motivations. Look with me, beginning in verse 9. Much people of the Jews therefore knew that He, Jesus, was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also, who he, whom He had raised from the dead. But the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus to, also to death, because that by means of him, many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. The Pharisees knew that Jesus was in Bethany for these days just prior to Passover. Not only were they conspiring against Jesus, but they were also conspiring against Lazarus to put him to death because many people saw Lazarus, saw that he had raised from the dead, and they began to believe in Jesus Christ for the sake of Lazarus' testimony. Now, there is an irony here, an irony that we're not going to park on, but how ironic is it that the Jews desired to kill a man for his testimony of being raised from the dead. This guy was raised from the dead. Let's kill him. Didn't work the first time. Death didn't have its victory the first time. 
There's an irony there. But what I would like us to focus on is not that irony for the final point, but rather verses 12 through 17. This passage is commonly called the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. It is here that Jesus Christ enters into Jerusalem in the typical fashion of a king who would enter into a city at a time of peace. Look at it with me, beginning in verse 12. On the next day, much people that were come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. And Jesus, when he had found a young ass, sat thereon as it was written, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, for behold, thy king cometh sitting on an ass's colt. These things understood not his disciples at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they that these things were written of him and that they had done these things unto him. The people, therefore, that was with him when he called Lazarus out of the grave and raised him from the dead, bear record. When Jesus went into the city on this foal, on this ass, he was definitively stating that he is the king of Israel. But he was also stating that he was coming in peace, not in war. John here quotes in fulfillment of this prophecy, Zechariah 9.9. Let me read it to you. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. And so in Zechariah 9.9, we are commended or the Israel is is told to rejoice in their king who is coming bringing salvation. The people responded in a kingly fashion. They took palm branches, a Hebrew sign of victory, and they placed them upon the ground in his path. In doing so, they were declaring his victory as a king would march into a city victorious after a battle. They were declaring his victory as they laid these palm branches down before him. He's coming in peace, riding upon an ass, showing that he's coming in peacetime, not in wartime. Victory, peace, crying Hosanna. The Hebrew word meaning save now or save us now. They call Jesus the King of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. They recognized, they were verbally recognizing his Messiahship, his kingship here. Yet, for all of this fanfare, the people's motivations for the praise that they poured upon Jesus was not spiritual. It was political. They wanted an earthly king, not a heavenly king. They wanted a king in the city, not a king in their hearts. They wanted someone to rule on that throne in Jerusalem, not to rule on the throne of their hearts. And so here we see a group who have a love for Jesus, but they have misplaced motivations for their love. Their love was not like Mary's love, who was willing to pour out all that she had upon this earth to show Jesus' worth and what she meant to Him. These people willingly laid down palm branches. They willingly called Him a king, but their devotion would end at any hint of sacrifice or of danger. Where were these people that cried, Hosanna, blessed is Him that cometh in the name of the Lord when Jesus Christ was hung upon a tree? 
when Jesus Christ was found at trial, how quickly their loyalties turned. All four types of people we've looked at today are hearing me preach this message. There are the Marthas and the Lazaruses, people who love Jesus and are actively serving Him, but aren't giving everything to Him. They are tempered by what Christian culture says is enough. It's enough simply for you to give to the missionaries. Don't you dare think of going to the missionary on, mission field on your own. That's only for those special people. Sure, you can put your fish on the car, but don't knock on doors. That's only for people that are too zealous. Sure, you can go to church, but, you know, three times a week, really? I mean, pastor, are you really going to ask that much? There are those who are like the disciples under the sound of my voice who love Jesus but aren't willing to go beyond what makes sense. You know, that's just not really effective. You don't need to go there. You know, you're not really getting anyone through your doors with that kind of music. You're not really getting anyone through your doors with that kind of procedure. You reason that certain efforts simply aren't worth the time or the money. Perhaps there are some like the multitudes under the sound of my voice today who say they love Jesus, who will outwardly go through the motions, but your heart is as far from Him as could possibly be. You may place a palm branch in His path. You may call Him a king, but He's not the king of your heart. You just simply see Him as a king. You have no loyalty to Him except to the degree to which you think He can benefit you. But there are, however, under the sound of my voice today, some Marys in this room as well. People who have and will continue to spend and be spent for Jesus Christ. People who show Jesus Christ His worth in absolutely whatever way they can. People who will do things that others may scoff at, call unreasonable, but in their hearts and minds, they do it because they cannot think of any better way to show Jesus Christ their love. If they had a better way, maybe they would do that. But you know what? Until that better way is found, they're going to do what they can. So they do. Who are you today? If you are like the multitudes, if Jesus Christ is not your king, if you have never accepted him as your savior, I encourage you to see me after the service. We'll show you how you can know for sure that you're on your way to heaven. But perhaps you are like the disciples, scoffing at the extra efforts of others who would show Jesus worth. Perhaps you are like the Marthas and the Lazaruses, wanting to show Jesus worth, but failing in that they fall short of complete yieldedness. Again, Please do not paint my statements as a reflection on, negatively on their character. But when we compare their actions to the actions of Mary, we see that here was a woman, that perhaps you're like her, who poured yourself out and who is pouring yourself out unto God. May I encourage you today to ask God to search your heart, reveal areas of your own deficiencies, and become Christians, fathers, children, employees, 
church members who are willing to pour out everything that they have in order to show God how precious He is to you.